Welcome to another episode of the Powerless to Powerful Recovery Podcast. My name is Jason. I'm an alcoholic and an addict. I want to remind everyone that our mission is to share experience, strength, and hope across multiple media platforms, the story of addiction, the road to recovery. Uh, This podcast centers around all the paths of recovery, all the various 12-step recovery paths. We're not affiliated in any way with Alcoholics Anonymous or any other 12-step-based groups or organizations. My mission is is just to share some experience, strength, and hope in, in hopes that someone initiates a little bit of action in their life and asks for help. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about step one found in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous on page 30. You know, that's the hardest step to fully concede to your innermost self that you're an alcoholic, you're an addict, there is no other way for you to do it. You need help to ask for help, to walk into your first meeting, to see the need for change. The first 51 pages of the big book are designed for you to determine if you're an alcoholic, for you to determine. Not me, not your mom, not your dad, not your wife, not your brother, not anyone else in your life for you to determine. You have to come to that conclusion. You have to understand that you've tried everything else. There's no way for you to do it. You need help and you're willing to do something different. Like I said, the first 51 pages of the big book is for you to decide if you're an alcoholic and addict. If when you read through the doctor's opinion, And you can relate to having a mental obsession. You obsess over using. And you have a physical allergy, that craving, that more, and the obsession, and the craving, and the obsession, and the craving. And you can't stop when you want to. If you can relate to making the supreme sacrifice of giving everything away, sacrificing your freedom, sacrificing your family, sacrificing your health, wanting to die. If you can relate to that, you might be one of us. That's for you to decide. If you could relate to being the real alcoholic, the Dr. Jekyll, the Mr. Hyde that it talks about, and there is a solution. If you could relate to trying everything and it just wasn't working, you just couldn't figure out, you couldn't stop, you couldn't do it for anyone, then you might be one of us. If when you read the first nine pages of Bill's story in the big book, and his story sounds just like yours, the same characteristics, the same, the same manifestations of his disease, this alcoholic mentality. If you could relate to that, then you might be one of us too. If you have poor control over stopping, poor control over the amount you use, and you continuously use despite negative consequences, you might be one of us too. You might be one of us too. So today we're going to be talking about more about alcoholism, which is step one, chapter three in the big book on page 30. So if you have your big books and you want to follow along, I'll be going back and forth sharing the big book. The program is in the book. It's not my program. It's the program. I'll be sharing my experience through it. I'll be sharing the way that I interpret the steps, the way I experienced them when I worked with my sponsor, the way I experienced them over and over again when I continue to sponsor other guys. I'm going to be sharing that with you as well. So I'll be going back and forth. But it's so critical, man. It's so critical to really understand that there's a problem. It's not getting better. It gets worse, never better. This chapter is going to make several different points. You know, as you read the big book, it's important to understand to be able to break it down because to know the program is to know the book. It'll make several different points and then it'll always reference a story from one of the first hundred members of their experience with it. So as we go through this, we're going to be making several different points. We're going to be talking about the insanity, 
the insanity of doing the same things over and over again and expecting different results. And there's going to be a story with that. We're going to talk about self-knowledge, why that's not good enough. And there's going to be a story with that. We're going to talk about the progressiveness of this disease. And there's going to be a story about that. It's going to make several different points. So I'm going to take you along this journey with me. And I hope everyone enjoys it today. I hope everyone can see and look at the other episodes of Doctor's Opinion. There is a solution that, that is also posted up on the website, um, on the podcast. Check it out, man. If you can relate to this, man, ask for help. Go to a meeting. Find a sponsor. Find a path. Whatever that is, whatever you choose to gravitate towards, find it and do it. Do it. Because your life depends on it. We're at a point now where there's no in-between anymore. If I'm not working on recovery, I'm working on a relapse, and that's just what it looks like for me. I got two choices. Either I get busy living or I get busy dying, man, and that's just what this thing is. This thing never goes away. I have to continuously, on a day-to-day basis, maintain my spiritual condition. So we're on chapter three in the big book. Uh, It's page 30, more about alcoholism. So I'm going to be reading the book, and I'm going to be going back and forth and sharing some of my experience. So here we go. Most of us have been unwilling to admit we're real alcoholics. No person likes to think that he's bodily or mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it's not surprising that our using and drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove that we could get high or drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, we'll be able to control and enjoy our using or drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal user or drinker. The persistence of the illusion is astonishing that will pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. I'll continue to try to prove to myself that I am not an alcoholic. It's an obsession. It's an illusion. It's a delusion that I can control and enjoy it. I've never been able to do that. But this thinking problem, this alcoholic mentality tells me that I can. It tells me that I can drink one time. It tells me that I could smoke weed. It tells me that I can do heroin and stop before I get dope sick and not experience negative consequences, despite evidence that shows I've never been able to do any of those things. But I'll continue to try to prove myself exception to the rule. So we learn that we have to fully concede. This is the step they're going to talk about getting 100%. Fully conceding to our innermost selves that we're alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we're like other people, or presently maybe, has to be smashed. And what I really love about the big book is the type of words that it uses. Very critical words. So far, we've got obsessions, illusions, insanity, death, fully smashed. They're there to make a point. Because we alcoholics are men and women who've lost the ability to control our drinking. We know that no real alcoholic ever recovers control. All of us felt at times we were regaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to, pay attention, pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. Pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. It takes everything from me, everything I value, the morals, the standards, the beliefs, the character assets that I possess. It takes everything from me. We are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type are in a grip of a progressive illness. Over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. 
This thing never goes away. It's progressive. It's a disease. We've talked about that several times previously. Talked about that, and there's a solution comparing cancer to addiction. It talked about that in the doctor's opinion. So if this thing's progressive and it gets worse, never better, and left untreated, it's going to cause me to die, that tells me that I have to have an extremely aggressive recovery. I got to be willing to go to farther lengths than I ever went in my addiction. And I don't know if you guys are like me. I have a funny feeling you are. That I could wake up with no money, no phone, no car, nobody, not a penny, and have to get across town and have money to pick up. And I'm going to pick up every day and score. Every day. So if I can do that for my addiction, I have to be willing to go farther than that for my recovery. Progressive disease, aggressive recovery. We're like men who've lost their legs. We never grow new ones. Neither does there appear to be any kind of treatment which makes alcoholics of our kind like other men. We have tried every imaginable remedy. In some instances, there has been brief recovery followed always by still worse relapse. Can you relate to that? Can you relate to a a period of relief? A period of recovery, a period of half-stepping, a period of abstinence, a period of white-knuckling, and you go back to when you're worse than you were before and you lose everything quicker and you're homeless quicker every time. Can you relate to that? If you can, then we got to get moving in the right direction. Ask for help. Find a sponsor. Find a mentor. Find a path. This thing wants you dead. Physicians who are familiar with addiction and alcoholism agree there is no such thing as making a normal user or drinker out of an alcoholic. Science may may one day accomplish it, but it has not been done so yet. Despite all we can say, many who are real alcoholics are not going to believe that they're in that class. By every form of self-deception, experimentation, they'll try to prove themselves exceptions to the rule, therefore non-alcoholic. We'll continue to experiment with that. We'll continue to deceive ourselves. We'll continue to lie to ourselves and try to prove to everyone and to ourselves that we can get high and we could drink like normal people, but we can't. We haven't been able to. I got decades and year upon year upon year and evidence that shows me and data that's been collected that shows me that I can never and have never been able to do it. But my disease tells me I can If anyone who is showing the inability to control his using or drinking can do the right about face and drink like a gentleman, our hats are off to him. Heavens knows we've tried hard and long enough to use and drink like other people. So you're going to see people who could have a beer after work on Friday and they make it home. You can see people who can smoke weed at the end of the night and not experience consequences. We can't envy those people. We have to understand that that is not us. That's the first step in recovery, fully conceding, waving the white flag, surrender. Honesty is the principle behind it. You know, we don't come to 12-step meetings when we're all stars at life. We don't come when we have other options. We come when we have no other way. So now it talks about some methods that we have to try because we have to try everything first. Here's some of the things we've tried. Drinking beer only, limiting the number of drinks, never drinking alone, never drinking in the morning, drinking only at home, never having it in the house, never drinking during business hours, drinking only at parties, switching from scotch to brandy, 
drinking only natural wines, agreeing to resign if ever drunk on the job, taking a trip or not taking a trip, swearing off forever, taking more physical exercise, reading inspirational books, going to health farms, sanitariums, accepting voluntary commitment to asylums. We could increase the list ad infinitum. Gotta try everything first. We do not like to pronounce any individual an alcoholic, but you can quickly diagnose yourself. Step over to the nearest bar, try some controlled drinking, try some controlled using. Try to drink, try to use, try to stop abruptly. Try it more than once. It won't take you long to decide if you're honest with yourself about it. It may be worth a bad case of the jitters to get a full knowledge of your condition. It just might be worth it. There's no way of proving it, but we believe that early in our drinking careers, most of us could have stopped using or drinking. But the difficulty is that few alcoholics have had enough desire to stop while there is yet time. We have heard a few instances where we're able to stop for a long period because of an overpowering desire to do so, and here's one. I'd like to think that back in high school, when I started to experiment, when I started this progression, when I started to develop this thing, if I would have known what was to come, the 10 years in prison, the multiple prison sentences, watching my daughter grow up through visitation, breaking my mom's heart, my dad's heart, and my brother and everyone in my family, and my wife, the things that I put her through, the pain that it caused me, the physical toll, the county jail times, the detoxes, the rehabs. I'd like to think that I would stop. But the problem is, I still think it's fun. I haven't experienced enough pain or negative consequences, and by that time, it's too late. So now we're going to read the story, and this this story is going to be specifically related to the progressiveness of this disease, and here we go. So this is the progressiveness story. A man of 30 was doing a great deal of spree drinking. He was nervous in the morning after these bouts and quieted himself with more liquor. He was ambitious to succeed in business, but he saw that he would get nowhere if he drank at all. Once he started, he had no control whatever. That's powerless. He made up his mind that until he'd been successful in business and retired, he would not touch another drop. Exceptional man, remained bone dry for 25 years, retired at the age of 55 after a successful and happy business career. Pay attention. Then he fell victim to a belief which practically every alcoholic addict has, that his long period in sobriety and self-discipline had qualified him to drink like other men. My first prison sentence, sober. White knuckling, abstinent, no program, no tools. I just wasn't using. Got out on probation, completed probation. Then I thought that long period of sobriety and self-discipline qualified me to drink like other men. My best friend and I, we went to Vegas. Halloween one night. Of course, that's a great idea. Let's go celebrate. You're off probation. I thought I could drink. I woke up in the morning on the hotel room floor, just like the hangover, the movie. The only problem is there wasn't anything cool going on, just me laying on the floor. I started to use again. I started to drink again. And I picked up right back where I left off. Out came his carpet slippers in a bottle. In two months, he was puzzled 
and humiliated. He tried to regulate his drinking for a while and made several trips to the hospital in the meantime. Then gathering all his forces, he attempted to stop altogether, but found he could not. Every means of solving his problem, which money could buy, was at his disposal. Every attempt failed. Though a robust man of retirement, he went to pieces quickly and was dead within four years. This case contains a powerful lesson. Most of us believed if we remained sober for a long stretch, we could therefore, thereafter, drink normally or use normally. But here's a man at 55 years found he was just where he left off at 30. That's the progressiveness, guys. We've seen the truth demonstrated again and again. Once an addict, always an addict. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Commencing to drink after a period of sobriety were in short time as bad as ever. If we're planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation. No reservation. No reservation of any kind, nor any lurking notion that someday we'll be immune to alcohol. We can't hold on to any other reservations. Reservation being, well, if my girl leaves me, then I'm going to use again. If someone in my family dies, well, I'm definitely going to use again. If I go to a wedding, I'm definitely going to use again. Only at football games, I'll have a beer with dad. Only on anniversaries. Reservations could be that one friend that we have his number in our phone and we just keep it there. That one friend that we still talk to that uses. Those places that we just happen to frequent. Those are reservations too. Young people may be encouraged by this man's experience to think that they could stop as he did on their own willpower. We doubt if many of them can do it because none will really want to stop. And hardly one of them because of the peculiar mental twist. Remember, it's a thinking problem. Mental twist. Alcoholic mentality. We'll find he could win out. Several of our crowd, men of 30 or less, have been drinking only a few years, but they found themselves as helpless as those who've been drinking for 20 years. To be gravely affected, one does not necessarily have to drink or use a long time, nor take the quantities that some of us have. There's no set amount of drugs or alcohol you have to intake, you have to use to become an alcoholic. Some it happens right away. Some it's a gradual progression. Some pass through the four stages of the disease concept. Everybody's different. This is particularly true for women, though. Potential female addicts often turn into the real thing and are gone beyond recall in a few years. Certain drinkers who would be greatly insulted if called alcoholics are astonished at their inability to stop. We who are familiar with this symptom see large numbers of potential alcoholics among young people anywhere. But try to get them to see it. As we look back, we feel we've gone on using and drinking many years beyond the point where we can quit our own willpower. If anyone questions whether he's entered this dangerous area, let him try leaving drugs or liquor alone for a year. If he's a real alcoholic and very far advanced, there's scant chance of success. In the early days of our drinking or using, we occasionally, occasionally remain sober for a year or more, becoming serious users or drinkers again later. Though you may be able to stop or moderate for a considerable period, you may yet be a potential alcoholic. We think few to whom this book will appeal can stay anything dry like a year. Some will be high the day after making the resolutions. Most of them within a few weeks. Tomorrow I'm going to stop. I'm not doing this again. I go to detox for six days and I have it all figured out and it's done and I'm over and I'm good. I make these resolutions. I make these promises and I mean it with everything that I have. I want to stop, but I can't. I just can't do it. But I keep saying that I will. Try to stop. If you can't stop, you might be one of us. Fully conceit. Admit. Ask for help. Get honest. Diagnose yourself. For those who are unable to use or drink moderately, the question is, well, how to stop altogether? We're, we're assuming, of course, you want to stop. 
Whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent which he's already lost the power to choose whether he'll use or not. Many of us felt that we have plenty of character. There was a tremendous urge to cease forever, yet we found it impossible. This is the baffling feature of alcoholism and addiction. The utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or the wish. For you guys who've attended meetings, cunning, baffling, and powerful, you hear it all the time. That's what baffling means. The utter inability. The utter inability to leave it alone. No matter how great the necessity or wish. I could wish it. I could want it. I've used and I've cried while doing it because it hurt so bad and I didn't want to do it. But I couldn't not not do it. I couldn't not not use. It's cunning, baffling, powerful, and it's patient as well. Well, how then shall we help our readers to determine to their own satisfaction whether one of us? Well, the experiment of quitting for a period of time will be helpful, but we think we could render even a greater service to alcoholic and addicted sufferers and perhaps the medical fraternity. So we shall describe some of the mental twists that precedes a relapse. For obviously, that's the crux of the problem. Remember, it's a thinking problem because at some point, I think that I could use, I can control, I can enjoy it, I can beat the game. I think I can do it different this time. And I've never been able to do it. And I got evidence upon evidence upon evidence. That's why it centers in the mind. Because I think it'll be different this time. So now we're going to get into the problem, the thinking problem story. Friends who have reasoned with them after a spree, which has brought him to the point of divorce or bankruptcy, are mystified when he walks directly into the bar. Why does he? What is he thinking? What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of that first drink, that first hit? Here's the story. Our first example is a friend we shall call Jim. This man has a charming wife and family. He inherited a lucrative automobile agency. He has a commendable world war record. He's a good salesman. Everybody likes him. He's an intelligent man. No more so far as we can see except for his nervous disposition. He did no drinking until he was 35. In a few years, he became so violent when high that he had to be committed. On leaving the asylum, he came in contact with us. We told him we told him what we knew about addiction, alcoholism. The answer we had found, he made a beginning. His family was reassembled. He began to work as a salesman for the business he had lost through drinking. All went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. That's a problem, guys. To his consternation, he found himself drunk a half a dozen times in rapid succession. On each of these occasions, we worked with him reviewing carefully what had happened. He agreed he was a real alcoholic and in a serious condition. He knew he faced another trip to the asylum if he kept on. Moreover, he would lose his family for whom he had deep affection. Yet he got high again. He got drunk again. We asked him to tell us exactly how it happened. This is his story. So I'm going to point this out as we go through. This is his story. This is what happened. This is what led up to it. This program gives us awareness. Recovery gives us awareness to take responsibility for our thoughts, feelings, and actions. We're driven by them. I got a thinking problem. So if I'm driven by my thoughts and I have a thinking problem, then there's an issue. And I don't know how to handle my emotions, especially negative, especially the guilt, shame, embarrassment, remorse, regret, the harms I've done to others. When I think about those, I don't like them, but I don't have another solution. I don't know how to handle them. So here's the story. I came to work on Tuesday morning. Remember, I felt there's a feeling, irritated, negative emotion. That I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. Resentment. I had a few words with the boss. Now he's lashing out. But nothing serious. He decided that's a thought to drive into the country to see one of my prospects for a car. On the way, I felt feeling hungry. So I stopped at a roadside place where they have a bar. 
I had no intention of using or drinking. Now, if he had been enlarging his spiritual life and he had been utilizing his, his recovery, if he had that awareness after that type of morning, he could have applied the tools of the program, but he didn't. I just had the thought I would get a sandwich. I also had the notion, another thought, that I might find a customer at a car for a car at this place because I was familiar. Because I've been going to it for years. I've eaten there many times during the months I was sober. I sat down at the table, ordered a sandwich, glass of milk, still no thought of drinking. I ordered another sandwich and decided to have another glass of milk. Suddenly, the thought crossed my mind that if I put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. I ordered a whiskey, poured it in my milk, vaguely sensed. I was not being any too smart, but felt reassured as I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. The experiment went so well, I ordered another whiskey, poured it in my milk. That didn't seem to bother me, so I tried another. Thinking problem. I think that if I just mix, mix wil- milk and whiskey, that everything is going to be fine now. It's never fine. Thus started one more journey to the asylum for Jim. Here was a threat of commitment, the loss of family and position, to say nothing of that intense mental and physical suffering which drinking always caused him. He had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all reasons for not using or drinking were easily pushed aside in favor for the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if he only mixed it with milk. Whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. Insanity. How could such a lack of proportion of the ability to think be called anything else? You may think this is an extreme case. To us, it's not so far-fetched. For this sort of thinking has been characterized in every single one of us. We have sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences. But there was always that curious mental phenomenon, that parallel with our sound reasoning, that inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking that first drink. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea won out. The next day, we'd be asking ourselves in all earnestness and sincerity, how could it have happened? Again? Again? Here we are. Why? Why? In some circumstances, we've gone out deliberately to get high or drunk. Feeling, remember, we're driven by our thoughts and feelings. Feeling ourselves justified by negative emotions. Nervousness, anger, worry, depression, jealousy, or the like. But even in this type of beginning, we're obliged to admit that our justification for a spree was insanely insufficient in the light of what always happened. We now see that when we began to deliberately, instead of casually use, there was little or serious effective thought during the period of premeditation of what the consequences, terrific consequences might be. Now we're going to get into the insanity and there's going to be a story that represents that. People who have watched us, our family, our wives, our friends who have seen us go through all this pain, this trauma, this insanity, doing the same things over and over again, expecting different results. It's insanity. Our behavior is absurd and incomprehensible. Here's the insanity story. With respect to that first drink, as an individual with a passion, say, for jaywalking, he gets a thrill out of skipping in front of fast-moving vehicles. He enjoys himself for a few years in spite of friendly warnings. Up to this point, you label him as a foolish chap, Having queer ideas of fun. Luck then deserts him. He's slightly injured several times in succession. You would expect, if he were normal, to cut it out. Presently, he's hit again. This time, he has a fractured skull. Within a week after leaving the hospital, a fast-moving trolley car breaks his arm. He tells you he's decided to stop jaywalking for good. 
but in a few weeks, he breaks both legs. On through the years, the conduct continues, accompanied by continual promises to be careful to keep off the streets altogether. Finally, he can no longer work. His wife gets a divorce. He's held up to ridicule. He tries every known means to get the jaywalking idea out of his head. He shuts himself up in asylum, hoping to mend his ways. But the day he comes out, he races in front of a fire engine, which breaks his back. Such a man would be crazy, wouldn't he? You may think our illustration is too ridiculous, but is it? We who have been through the ringer must admit if we substituted alcoholism or addiction for jaywalking, the illustration would fit us exactly. Exactly. However intelligent we think we are, we may have been in other respects. When alcohol and drugs are involved, we're strangely insane. It's strong language. But isn't it true? Isn't it true? Substitute addiction for jaywalking, man, that fits me. I had an overdose. I got out of the hospital and I used again. That's insane. Remember, you're diagnosing yourself. Some of you may be thinking, yeah, what you tell me is true, but it doesn't fully apply to me. I admit that I've gone to, I have some of these symptoms, but I haven't gone to the extremes that you have, nor am I likely to, for I understand myself so well after what you've told me that this can't happen to me or again. I haven't lost everything in life through using and certainly don't intend to. Thanks for the information. If that's you, then that's you. If it's not, ask for help. Fully concede. Go all in. You got everything to gain and nothing to lose. I could promise you that. That may be true, though, for certain non-alcoholic people, though, using foolishly or drinking heavily at the time may be able to stop or moderate because their brains and bodies haven't been damaged as ours were. But the actual potential alcoholic, with hardly exception, will be absolutely unable to stop drinking or using on the basis of self-knowledge. So now we're going to get into self-knowledge and what that looks like. This is a point we wish to emphasize and re-emphasize to smash upon home to our alcoholic readers as it's been revealed to us had a bitter experience. Let us take another illustration. So we're going to be talking about self-knowledge. Remember, this is disease, just like cancer. So if you go, if you have cancer, right, and you have, you're experiencing some of the symptoms, it's taking a toll on you physically, you go to a doctor, you get a checkup, and he says you have stage two cancer. Self-knowledge would be, thank you for letting me know I'm good now and not treating it. That's just not good enough. I did a 16-day program at Crossroads and left. Thank you for the knowledge. Relapse is right around the corner for me. Detox. Thanks for the knowledge. Six days. Counselors. Oh, I'm an addict. Thank you for the knowledge. Relapse again. Here's the illustration. Fred is a partner at a well-known accounting firm. His income is good. He has a fine home, is a happily married and father of promising children of college age. He has so attractive a personality, he makes friends with everyone. If ever there was a successful businessman, it's Fred. To all appearances, he's a stable, well-balanced individual, yet he's an alcoholic. We saw Fred about a year ago in a hospital where he'd gone to recover from the bad case of the jitters. It was his first experience of this kind. He was much ashamed of it. Far from admitting he was an alcoholic, he told himself he came to the hospital to rest his nerves. Just rest him on nerves. The doctor intimated strongly he might be worse than he realized. A few days he was depressed about his condition. He made up his mind to quit drinking altogether. It never occurred to him that perhaps he could not do so, in spite of his character and standing. Fred would not believe himself an alcoholic. 
much less accept a spiritual remedy for his problem. We told him what we knew about addiction. He was interested, conceded he had some of the symptoms, but he was a long way from admitting that he could not do anything about it himself. He was positive that his humiliating experience, plus the knowledge he had acquired, would keep him sober for the rest of his life. Self-knowledge would fix it. We heard no more from Fred for a while. One day we were told he was back in the hospital. This time he was quite anxious to see us. This is the story he told us most instructive. For here was a chap absolutely convinced he had to stop drinking, who had no excuse for drinking, who exhibited splendid judgment and determination. All his other concerns, Jed was flat on his back. Nevertheless, let him tell you about it. I was much impressed with what you fellows said about alcoholism. I frankly did not believe it'd be possible for me to use again. I rather appreciated your ideas about the subtle insanity that precedes that first drink. But I was confident it couldn't happen to me after what I had learned. A reason I was not so far advanced as most of you fellows, that I've been usually successful in licking my other personal problems, that I would therefore be successful where you men failed. I felt I had every right to be self-confident, that it would only be a matter of exercising my willpower and keeping on guard. In this frame of mind, I went about my business for a time. All was well. I had no trouble refusing drinks. I began to wonder if I had been not been making too hard work of a simple matter. One day, I went to Washington to present some accounting evidence to a government bureau. I'd been out of town before during this particular dry spell, so there was nothing new about that. Physically, I felt fine. Neither did I have any pressing problems or worries. My business came off well. I was pleased. Knew my partners would be too. It was the end of a perfect day. Not a cloud on the horizon. That's the most important part of this story. Perfect day. Not a cloud on the horizon. He's pleased. His partners were pleased. Everything's going good. But he uses again. Why? What happened to that self-knowledge? I went to my hotel room, leisurely just for dinner. I crossed the threshold of the dining room. The thought, thinking, remember, thinking problem, thought came to my mind. It'd be nice to have a couple cocktails with dinner. That was all, nothing more. I ordered a cocktail my meal, then ordered another cocktail. After dinner, I decided to take a walk. When I returned to the hotel, it struck me a highball would be fine before going to bed. So I stepped in the bar, had one. I remember having several more that night, plenty the next morning. I have a shadowy recollection of being in an airplane bound for New York, of finding a friendly taxi cab driver at the landing field instead of my wife. The driver escorted me about for several days. I know little of where I went, what I said and did. Then came the hospital with unbearable mental and physical suffering. As soon as I regained my ability to think, I went carefully over that evening in Washington. Not only had I been off guard, I had made no fight whatever against that first drink. This time I had not thought, thought of the consequences at all. Or the self-knowledge. I commenced to drink as carelessly though the cocktails were ginger ale. I now remember what my alcoholic friends had told me, how they prophesied that if I had the alcoholic mind, the time and place would come, I would drink again. They had said that though I did raise a defense, it would one day give way before some trivial reason for having a first drink. Well, just that did happen and more. For what I had learned about alcoholism did not occur to me all. At all. I knew from that moment that I had alcoholic mind. I saw that willpower and self-knowledge would not help me in those strange mental blank spots. I had never been able to understand people who said that a problem had them hopelessly defeated. I knew then it was a crushing blow. Two of alcoholics, two members of Alcoholics Anonymous came to see me. They grinned, which I didn't like so much. <laughs> they asked me if I thought myself an alcoholic. If I were really licked this time, have you had enough? I had to concede. To both propositions. 
They piled on me heaps of evidence to the effect that an alcoholic mentality such as I exhibit in Washington was a hopeless condition. They cited cases out of their own experience by the dozen. This process snuffed out the last flicker of conviction I could do the job myself. He fully conceded. They outlined the spiritual program of answer of action. The spiritual answer program of action, which a hundred of them had followed successfully. Though I had been a nominal churchman, their proposals were not intellectually hard to swallow. The program of action, though entirely sensible, was pretty drastic. It meant I would have to throw several lifelong conceptions out the window. There's one thing in recovery you have to change. Just one thing. That one thing is everything. That was not easy, but the moment I made up my mind to go through with the process, I had the curious feeling that my alcoholic condition was relieved, in fact, it proved to be. Quite as important was the discovery that spiritual principles would solve all my problems. He's beginning to start the solution. Step one, fully conceding, asking for help, making it to a meeting, finding a path of recovery, getting a sponsor, getting a mentor, going all in. Finding a higher power, coming to believe in two, make a decision in three to put that footwork in. I have since been brought into an infinite way of living, more satisfying and I hope more useful than the life I lived before. My old manner of life was by no means a bad one, but I would not exchange its best moments for the worst ones I have now. I wouldn't go back to it even if I could. That statement really rings home for me. I wouldn't trade the best moments that I had in addiction for the worst days I have in recovery. I wouldn't go back to it, man, even if I could. Fred's story speaks for itself. We hope it strikes home to thousands like him. He had felt only the first nip of the ringer. Most alcoholics and addicts have to be pretty badly mangled before they really commence to solve their problems. Waving that white flag just defeated the pain. I, I crawled into my first meeting. The pain was so great. I was driven there by this higher power I believe today was a spiritual experience. That misery threshold, it's reached the gift of pain and desperation. It's the last house on the block, man. When you've tried all the other ones, then you're ready. Many doctors and psychiatrists agree with our conclusions. One of these men, staff member of a world-renowned hospital, recently made the statement to some of us, what you say about the general hopelessness of the average alcoholic's plight is, in my opinion, correct. As the two of you men whose stories I have heard, there is no doubt in my mind that you are 100% hopeless apart from divine help. Had you offered yourselves as patients at this hospital, I would not have taken you if I had been able to avoid it because people like you are too heartbreaking. Though not a religious person, I have a profound respect for the spiritual approach. In such cases as yours, for most cases, there's virtually no other solution. Once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against that first drink. Except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from his higher power. And that's a transition into step two. Each step transitions into the next one. Once you've been able to fully concede to your innermost self that you're an alcoholic, that you're in the grip of a progressive illness over any considerable period, it gets worse, never better. You're ready to put in aggressive recovery. You're honest with yourself about the powerlessness that once you start, you can't stop. You can't not not use. And everything in, in your life is unmanageable. 
The powerless is, an, is the internal. The unmanageable is the external. If you can relate to the first 51 pages like it's your own and every one of the points that it makes, you've lived, you've experienced. If you've had enough pain and you've been given the gift of desperation, it's time to capitalize on that. This way, you don't get relief, you get recovery. I encourage everyone who's listened to this episode to really examine for themselves, to decide if you're one of us. Because if you are, there's two choices. Either get busy living or get busy dying. Today I choose to live. I hope you choose the same.